would you do if after praying for what seemed a lifetime, God suddenly answered your prayers? Would you rejoice and spring into action? Or would you be stunned and in a sense paralyzed by the realization that your hopes and dreams had finally come true? Well, the Jews prayed next year in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. And sometimes the longer we wait for an answer, the more stuck in we can become. It can be hard to move quickly when we've been kept on hold for a long time. But it's important to recognize the hand of God when he moves. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. Sometimes God does something for us that's so miraculous, we're stunned and suspended, as it were, in time. After the miraculous lightning six-day war of June 1967, rather than immediately going about the task of building their third temple, secular Israel instead meekly handed back the authority of the Temple Mount to the nation of Jordan thus granting their enemies decades to build up a narrative against Israel, while the third temple remained only a mirage in the minds of religious Jews. As a young man, Rabbi Israel Ariel's formative moment came in the Six-Day War when he served in a unit of the paratroopers brigade that captured the Temple Mount. In my research, I learned that a Jordanian gave the victors a guided tour where the two previous Jewish temples had stood. The guide reportedly told the young Rabbi Ariel that the Jordanians had a tradition. One day the Jews would reconquer this mountain and rebuild their holy temple. The Jordanian guide assumed the Israelis would begin building immediately. But the Jews were caught short by the high speed of end-time events and they didn't immediately seize their golden opportunity. Two decades later, Rabbi Ariel did start an organization called the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem's old city. In 1987, two decades later after the miraculous Six-Day War. Today, the Institute runs various enterprises, including a publishing house, yeshivas for youth and young adults, and a museum that seeks to reproduce sacred objects to be used in the future in a new temple. The Temple Institute is just one of several movements promoting construction of the Third Temple, but it certainly is the most vocal in publicity. Under Rabbi Ariel's leadership, the Temple Institute has been producing sacred furniture, priestly garb, and musical instruments for temple worship, including biblical-style harps. In fact, the return of the Harp of David is another end-time sign. Rabbi Ariel advocates that the temple should be rebuilt as soon as possible and for the Passover sacrificial service to be resumed. He is also involved in the revival of the Jewish Court of Elders, known as the Sanhedrin. 
As an Orthodox Jew, Rabbi Ariel was a graduate of Jerusalem's Merkaz Harav Yeshiva, where students are motivated to political action. They believe the Jews' return to the land of Israel under a secular Zionist movement reflects only the first stage in God's redemptive plan. According to Rabbi Zvi Yehuda Cook, son of the celebrated Ashkenazi chief rabbi Avraham Isaac Cook, the land of Israel is an organic entity that's somehow metaphysically united with the entire Jewish people, present, past, and future. In other words, according to this view, the Jewish people and the land are one. Therefore, no Jew has a right to give away any portion of the Holy Land since it belongs to God and doesn't belong to any one Jewish group. I discovered a fascinating article by Moti Mbari entitled Messianic Movements and Failed Prophecies in Israel, explaining the current mindset of Rabbi Ariel and many Orthodox religious Jews like him. They believe the time will come when secular Jews will acknowledge their mistake and will repent and transform the state of Israel into a theocracy in order to reinstitute the sacrificial services. Currently, the Temple Mount itself is still considered by most of the world as a Muslim place of worship, called in Arabic the Haram al-Sharif, meaning the noble sanctuary, with its golden dome of the rock shrine and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, whereas the Western Wall Plaza down below is considered the primary Jewish place of worship, like an open-air synagogue. The only Jewish ritual activity allowed up on the Temple Mount is silent, solitary prayer. During the period of tension preceding the 1967 Six-Day War, the young Rabbi Ariel was on reserve duty in the paratroopers' brigade when he found himself among the forces leading the Israeli advance toward the Western Wall and the Temple Mount. Running excitedly towards the holiest sites of Judaism stirred in him a profound messianic fervor. And as history records, the Israeli army managed a stunning victory of biblical proportions. Enbari's article on failed messianic prophecies states that Ariel was convinced that Messiah would arrive that very day to rebuild the temple. His elation was the result of a combination of education and experience. From his yeshiva, he had learned that the state of Israel was only the beginning of Jewish redemption, but with the Israeli army's major victory of recapturing Jerusalem's old city, he had participated in the actual return of his ancestral capital to Jewish control. This was an exploit worthy of the warrior King David. And, as providence would have it, that night Ariel was stationed as a guard at the entrance to the Dome of the Rock Shrine in the very vicinity of where Solomon's temple once stood. He waited in fervent expectation for a miracle that would fulfill biblical prophecies of redemption, having no doubt that at any moment he might come face to face with the Messiah. He felt highly privileged to be stationed on the Temple Mount on this faithful night when he would experience the appearance of divinity 
and watch the third temple miraculously descend from heaven, complete and ready, taking its original pride of place on the Temple Mount. But to his dismay, nothing happened. No temple descended. The night passed, weeks and months followed, and the Messiah also failed to appear. Although Ariel was filled with messianic disappointment, he nevertheless revised his expectations, as did many other religious Jews. Now they believe Messiah would only come when the temple is standing, so they must arise and build. The traditional Orthodox belief that Messiah himself would build the temple was now to their minds a mistaken anticipation. Therefore, to their minds, construction of the temple was a task incumbent upon the Jewish people in order to create conditions necessary to attract the Messiah. They concluded nothing had yet happened due to Jewish inaction. Here's a quote from the article by Moti Mbari entitled Messianic Movements and Failed Prophecies in Israel. Rabbi Ariel stated, God does not intend for us to wait for a day of miracles. We are expected to act, to do all in our power to prepare for the rebuilding of the Holy Temple and the renewal of the divine service. So Messiah's failure to appear immediately after the war did not weaken Jewish resolve. On the contrary, faith in Jewish redemption was strengthened as religious Jews reassessed their situation. Rabbi Ariel's introspection led him to find a tactical solution to his spiritual crisis that mandated a different course of action. The temple must be built not by God, but by human hands, working to fulfill God's plan, just like Bible days, when the two former temples were constructed by obedient human beings. In yet another major step toward preparing for the rebuilding of the temple and the renewal of the divine service, the Temple Institute has established the Levitical Choir Academy, dedicated to teaching today's descendants of the tribe of Levi. Levitical garments have been designed for the choir to be worn during their service in a rebuilt temple. So this is where religious Jews are at in this moment of Bible prophecy. Now, the book of Daniel 9.27 and in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, prophesy a future covenant that will be made with Israel by a sinister figure known as the Antichrist, who will stop sacrifices and offerings in a rebuilt temple of God or in some sort of structure, perhaps even a temporary tabernacle, standing in the holy place, and he will set up an abominable image in the holy place, claiming to be God and demanding worship, thus defiling the sanctuary. In Matthew 24, 15, referencing the prophet Daniel, Jesus specifically warned about this. And while all of this end-time Bible prophecy is unfolding step-by-step step and stage-by-stage, Evangelical Christians are increasingly coming under fire for holding biblical beliefs. 
Another rabbi has come forth to say that our conservative Bible beliefs are not just ours, but that conservative values originated with the Jewish people and their holy scriptures. Rabbi Yaakov Minkin's organization represents more than 2,000 Orthodox rabbis on public policy. Rabbi Minkin told the Daily Signal website that his group constitutes living proof that social conservatives are not trying to force Christian values down Americans' throats, as many on the left claim. Rabbi Minkin said that when conservatives speak up, the left immediately claims that only Christians believe this. The left says to be pro-life or to be pro-family and so forth is a violation of the separation of church and state. He said even the Jewish left has attacked his organization for advocating policies more often associated with evangelical Christians. But the rabbi retorted, from where do you think these evangelicals get their conservative positions? Well, of course, from the Bible. Rabbi Menken says conservative values need a Jewish voice, and his organization emerged because a group of Orthodox rabbis realized that nobody is speaking out on behalf of Jewish tradition. He claims that the overwhelming majority of rabbis in America are right-wing and very conservative in their values as compared to the average Jewish person. Rabbi Minkin also countered what he called the foolish idea that abortion is a religious freedom issue for Jews. He warned that weaponizing religious liberty is profoundly dangerous because if everything becomes a religious liberty issue, then nothing is a religious liberty issue. The fact that his organization of 2,000 rabbis is backing up Judeo-Christian values is very encouraging. Now, if only we could see unity among evangelical pastors concerning the end times and doctrines such as the imminent rapture of the church. So many pastors are suddenly denying the biblical doctrine of the rapture. Dr. John MacArthur was known as America's pastor during the pandemic because he kept his California church open to congregants. He recently preached again on the pre-tribulational rapture at his Shepherds Conference, asking pastors not to discourage the hope of the rapture. Because remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So where are we presently on God's prophetic timeline? Many eschatologists, those who teach on the end times, believe that we're on the very precipice of the seven-year tribulation period that will happen after the rapture. And we have to be watching, ready, and prayed up because Jesus said the rapture will not happen when you think it will happen. The New Testament says, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. But that surprise will be mainly for the unbelievers. For those not living in darkness, the Lord's coming will not be like a thief. We will be watching and ready for him. And before we go any further, let me explain 
By the word rapture, I mean the Bible doctrine when Jesus resurrects all believers who have died and then catches up all living believers for a great reunion in the air at the end of the church age and prior to the kingdom being restored to Israel. As I've said many times, the word rapture is not in the English Bible, but it's taken from the Latin Bible. Just as the word Trinity is also not in the Bible, but the doctrine is in the Bible. It's important to learn the main verses of the rapture doctrine described by Jesus in John 14.3, in Luke 21.36, and Revelation 3.10, and also by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17, and in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, where Paul wrote, Behold, listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We're not all going to die, but we will all be changed in an instant, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. I heard a faithful preacher explain that the rapture is God's way of doing things. What did he mean by that? In Luke 17, there are two classic pictures of the righteous being saved from God's wrath. The first example was Noah, who built the ark. Jesus said in Luke 17, 26 and 27, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, drank, married, and were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. The Bible testifies that the world in Noah's day was full of violence and immorality, just like today, ripe for judgment. However, Noah was evacuated from the earth into the ark, a place of safety from the flood of judgment. God himself closed the door on the ark before judgment fell. Likewise, Jesus said God will provide an escape for believers from the worldwide judgment of the great tribulation period, just as he did in the days of Noah. Many scholars and eschatologists teach that the pre-flood disappearance of Noah into the ark, lifting him above the flood waters, is a picture of of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Then Jesus said at the time of the end in the future, two men will be in the field. One will be taken to be with the Lord in the air. Whoosh! And the other will be left to go through the judgments of tribulation. He said two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other will be left behind. He said, watch therefore, for you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. Jesus warned, watch and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape, like Noah escaped, all these things that shall come to pass in the tribulation and to stand before the Son of Man, that is, in the rapture. The second example in Luke 17 of the righteous being saved from the outpouring of God's wrath is the story of the miraculous evacuation of Abraham's nephew named Lot from the notorious cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus compared the judgment of Sodom to the time of the great tribulation at the end of the age. He said, 
Conditions were the same in the days of Lot. People were going about their business as usual, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom as he was pulled out by angels, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. He said it will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And Jesus added, remember Lot's wife. She was turned into a pillar of salt when she hesitated to escape because she was married to the world. Jesus then said, whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, he added again, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. It's interesting that Jesus gave an example of the rapture happening both in the nighttime and in daytime activity because it will be a worldwide event spanning all time zones around the globe. The Bible teaches in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 to 11, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus the Messiah, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, which is what I'm doing, hopefully, in this broadcast. Hallelujah. And here's an important verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from what? From the wrath to come. The verse doesn't say he will rescue us through the wrath to come, but from the wrath to come. Jesus also said in Revelation 3.10 that the church of Philadelphia typified the church that will not pass through the tribulation, but will be caught up before the tribulation. This is because he said, you have obeyed my command to persevere. I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to try those who belong to this world. Meanwhile, we're witnessing the world turned upside down with even drag queens performing in churches and being invited to mentor children. Now then, keep in mind Israel's place on the timeline of Bible prophecy. Very importantly, Jesus described a fig tree generation in Matthew 24, 32. He said, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. And in the same way, when you see all these things, you can know that his return, the return of Messiah Jesus, is very near, right at the door. So what's the identity of that fig tree? Jesus said in Matthew 21, 19, that the fig tree is Israel. Because on the Mount of Olives, he withered a barren fig tree as a parable of the nation of Israel and its fruitless religious leadership of his day. But today, because of God's faithfulness to his covenants with Israel, that fig tree has been resurrected from the withering that took place 2,000 years ago. The Jewish people were put to the sword and sent into exile, but now they have sprung back to life. 
the fig tree lives again. We must take the Lord's word very seriously when he says, you also, when you see all of these things, know that his return is near at the very doors. That's why the rebirth of the nation of Israel is the most important end time sign of all the end time signs. We've always had wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, famines, and so forth. But only until our generation has the great sign of the re-emergence of Israel taken place. No other generation has had the privilege of that miraculous sign. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The fig tree, the Jewish people coming back to life and being resuscitated is described prophetically in Ezekiel chapter 37. That chapter graphically tells how the Jewish graves would be opened by God and they would be resurrected out of the horrors of the Holocaust and their piles of bones would be restored by the Lord in their own land. Listen to Ezekiel 37 in verse 12 to 14. Oh, my people, I will open your graves and bring you up from your graves, and I will bring you back to the land of Palestine. No, the text says, I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Wait a minute, in whose land? No, it says in your own land, the Jewish people's land. Then the Lord says, you will know I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Amen. What a privilege to be an eyewitness to God's resurrection of Israel and to walk their land with them. The Arabs need much grace to welcome home the Jews, their half-brothers. But healing is coming to these relatives. Both parties are rediscovering each other and will forge new alliances in the future in a common destiny. Hallelujah. Well, as we wrap up this program, let me encourage you to stay focused on the Lord. We can't always control what happens in our lives, but we can control how we react to things that happen according to the biblical precepts that we have learned and internalize. Let's never allow our minds to be preoccupied with unbiblical thoughts. Let's zero in on the positive, not on troublesome people and their projections that they project onto you. We can't focus on negatives, but rather let's focus on God and His faithfulness. Give priority time to people who care for you and pray for you. Recall all the help you've received from people in the past and honor those who have shared your hardships. Although these end times are not easy, there has never been a better opportunity nor a more urgent time for sharing the gospel. And while we wait, God promises us the comfort of the blessed hope of the Lord's soon appearing. Now, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to share with me on social media. 
on Getter, Facebook, and so forth. I also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv. You can click online to receive our weekly email and learn about our frequent Holy Land teaching tours and where you can watch all of our videos 24-7. Don't forget, download our free Jerusalem Channel app. You can view our video library there. And please subscribe to our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site and my Substack. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark, Maranatha, and Shalom. In my years of ministry in the Middle East, I've had deep spiritual conversations with many followers of Islam who shared with me one overriding experience. They all had, at one time or another, a dream or a vision about Jesus. And when they do, they have no doubt who he is or why he appeared to them. It's been my joy to document some of those heart-to-heart encounters of Jesus in the Muslim world in my book, Miracles Among Muslims, The Jesus Visions. This has been out of print since its first edition in 2006, but now for the first time, we've made it available to read as an ebook. Check it out in the bookshop at Amazon website. And if you have a heart for the Muslim world, I believe this book will be an eye-opening encouragement and great blessing.